The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So the, uh, the Danish theologian, uh, philosopher, poet, Soren Kierkegaard, he once wrote this. He said that, that life can only be understood backward, but it must be lived forwards. And I think that's true. And if you're anything like me, you've, you've probably looked around at any number of points during the winding journey of your life and asked yourself, how did I get here? Or some of you are, are certainly uh, still fresher in that journey than, than others amongst us. But rest assured, that question is coming for you as well. But I asked that question because I've got to be honest. I, this was not my plan. As many of you know, if I've talked about it before, my background before coming on the team at Ecclesia was primarily in the theater. I wanted to be an actor, and that was a pursuit which began in earnest back in the ninth grade. Uh, my best friend, Cody Wershing, he told me one uh, second period one morning in September that he was going to audition for something called the Pickwick Players, which was a youth performance troupe at the, at the Midland Community Theater back in Midland, Texas, uh, where I'm from. And he asked if I wanted to come, and I said, okay, when is it? He said, tomorrow. I said, okay. What do I need? He said, a monologue. I said, okay. What is that? And he says, it's a speech from a play. You have to have one minute memorized. I said, okay, okay. You mean like Shakespeare, right? And he said, Mike, whatever you do, do not try and memorize Shakespeare by tomorrow. And I said, okay. So naturally, ignoring that advice, I showed up the next day with a half-remembered speech from Henry V in the pocket of my baggy khaki cargo shorts. I'm trying to situate the scene in 1999, right? It will be no surprise to you that I very much enjoyed the halftime show, as I know many of you did. (laughs) And I proceeded that day to give the most, uh, let's say, fully committed, uh, if also the most uh, ill-prepared audition in my career. I still contend that I got accepted entirely on the basis of audacity, but I got in nonetheless. And, and I caught the acting bug in a major way, and I continued uh, to, to make that my primary focus and energy throughout high school, college, throughout my 20s. It was the focus for that next decade and a half. So what very few of you likely know is that I uh, took this job, that I joined the church staff during a time of, of personal discontentment and confusion and feeling adrift and rudderless. I'd been waiting tables for for nine years and wasn't sure what what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And I I took this job and it was mainly at the time to answer the phones and and to help out around the office and to coordinate some volunteers. I I did not arrive with with some uh, significant theological education or even a, a keen sense of calling into ministry. It was simply, as we've seen throughout this story of Joseph, what seemed to be the next faithful step at the time. But as I look back now, I I can't help but see the signs, the inevitability and hindsight of the the twists in circumstance and the steps of faith that have brought me here today. Because of what I've come to find is that whether it's here within the family of the church or on stage, it's much the same. It's this life-giving nature of, of collaborative storytelling that excites me about this work. It's telling the stories that that invite us to to consider how we see ourselves and our purpose in the world and our connection to a sense of the divine and to one another. And so in a sense, I've I've, I've merely traded the, the tragic drama of Shakespeare for the redemptive drama of the gospel. 
We understood, understand our life backwards, but we must live it forwards, right? And that's what we've seen throughout this journey, that this, this winding roller coaster story in the life of Joseph. And so I'm gonna walk back through some of those, those key moments. And Joseph was a dreamer, and he had these visions of this grand future for himself. And he was resented by his brothers, not entirely without reason. He was kind of a jerk about it, or at least like profoundly lacking in self-awareness and boasting that his brothers would bow down before him. And he sold into slavery. And then he finds himself elevated. He's rising through the ranks of Potiphar's servants, only to then fall when he's uh, wrongly accused of impropriety, of, of sexual assault of, of Potiphar's wife. And he's thrown into jail. And he stays there for a long time. And, and he finds himself entrusted with the operations of the prison itself. And then he has a chance to uh, interpret the dreams of one of his fellow prisoners, the Pharaoh's disgraced cupbearer. And he thinks that, oh, maybe this is my way out. Maybe this will lead to my release. And will this cupbearer remember him to Pharaoh? Only he forgets. And he spends two more years waiting until finally... Years later, the Pharaoh has this dream that no one else can discern the meaning of. And the cupbearer remembers, and Joseph is freed, and he warns Pharaoh of this great famine to come. But through all the obstacles, through all the setbacks, the through line, the constant thread here is Joseph's steadfastness, his faithfulness. And then he's elevated to this position of prominence, literally at the Pharaoh's right hands, second in command. And so when Pastor Sean left off in the story last week, we, we see that Joseph's father, Jacob, has sent Joseph's brothers into Egypt to purchase food because the, the famine had devastated Canaan. And the brothers indeed are now bowing before Joseph, the brother that they threw into a, a pit, the brother that they sold into slavery, and yet they fail to recognize him. Now, I don't have time to tell you the whole crazy story, but... but it's, I think it's important to hit some of these big events. So the a slightly condensed version of what follows is this, is that Joseph proceeds to play this series of mind games on his brothers as this kind of test for their repentance for their past actions. And so he briefly holds them prisoner. He accuses them of being spies. And then there's Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, who has not traveled with the rest of the brothers. But Joseph, who, who still has not revealed his identity at this point, he orders that Benjamin be brought to Egypt with the rest. And he does this so that he can ultimately frame Benjamin for stealing a silver chalice as a pretense. It would have been cause to, to detain him into servitude. And that's when Judah, speaking on behalf of, of all the other brothers, he stands before Joseph and he desperately pleads for Benjamin's release, offering to stand in his place instead. And he explains that the reason being that to lose Benjamin after already having lost Joseph, it would be too much for their father to bear, that Jacob would die at the news. Now, this is important. This is a dramatic reversal. This is Judah, whose own idea it was all those years ago to sell Joseph as a slave, now willing to stand in that place rather than allow another brother to experience the same fate. And this, at last, is when Joseph, recognizing this repentance, this change of heart of his brothers, he reveals himself. And he tells his brothers not to be distressed, not to be angry with themselves. It was not you who sent me here, he says, but God. And so as Sean taught us last week, this is the moment where the masks 
finally come off. And so healing perhaps can, can begin and Joseph sends his brothers home. I love this detail. He sends his brothers home, it says, dressed in new garments. It's another dramatic reversal from where the story began, if you'll recall Joseph being stripped of his colorful robe. And it's redeeming that story. And he charges them to bring Jacob back with their whole family into Egypt. And that's, that's where they settle in Goshen. And later, Jacob dies there, content, at peace, his family at last reunited. But healing has not been complete. Healing can be slow, and it's, it feels like there's still this, this great anxiety, this, this fear that Joseph's forgiveness is not entirely, perhaps, genuine. Because we hear earlier back in Genesis, in chapter 27, and this is from uh, Esau, and he's speaking about uh, Jacob, his own aggrieved brother, that, that sons were not allowed at the time to exact revenge on one another while their father still lived. But that's when Esau says this. He says, the days of mourning for my father are soon at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so now that Jacob has reached the end of his life, Joseph's brothers are, are probably understandably concerned for their safety. What if, what if Joseph has just been biding his time, keeping them close, just waiting for the moment that he would be free to retaliate against them? And so important context to set up, because this is where we pick up in chapter 50, which tells the story this way, that realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg of you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. So Sean suggested at the beginning of the series that it would help to solve the problem of sibling rivalry. And I think our answer is held within this story because I can't understand, uh, underscore enough how important it is that this story comes to us at the very end of the book of Genesis, the very last paragraphs of the book of Genesis because we look back and we begin to see that this was the story that God, through the writer, was telling us all along. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob, and now Joseph and his brothers. Genesis wants us to be asking these questions. Can there be peace? Can there be forgiveness? Can there be healing? Is it possible? And that is the question essential to our understanding of God's movement of redemption throughout the whole of scriptures. God's entire story comes back to this question. Because in the words of, of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, if brothers cannot live together, how can nations? And if nations cannot live together, how then can the human world survive? Without healing between those closest to us, between brothers, the path of humanity will invariably trend toward conflict, toward destruction, but it starts at home, this healing. And once again, Joseph reassures them that his forgiveness was indeed genuine. And Joseph goes on, he says to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. 
in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And in this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Something I know to be true of everyone in this room, all of you have been harmed. And all of you have done harm. That is why this story is so critical for us. How will we respond in places of rupture? Will our own hearts be changed in repentance for the harms that we've caused? Will we seek repair? And on the other side, will we extend forgiveness even in places where that harm may linger because we have become able to see how God has used it to shape us and to give life to others? So hear me clearly, there is a world of difference between this fatalistic way of saying everything happens for a reason and the comforting truth that God does and has and will continue to use even the intended harms of humanity toward redemptive good in the end. And so we look backward so that we can live forward, but we cannot live forward if we continue to be caught in these, these cycles that have us stuck. We were anchored to the past in these places of shame and resentment. Shame, it's this anger directed inward, and resentment is this anger directed outward. And it's that genuine remorse, genuine repentance, genuine forgiveness that frees us from both. Another way of, of saying that, again, to quote Rabbi Sachs, I love this. This is, uh, he says, there are two concepts of the past. The first is what happened. That is something we cannot change. The second is the significance, the meaning of what happens. That is something we can change. So the other day, I walked into the kids' playroom uh, to discover our six-year-old daughter, Mara. She was crying, she was distressed, she was feverishly erasing in one of her notebooks. And I said, hey, Mara, what's going on? What are you doing? And she said, I'm fixing it. And in a fury, she was frantically leafing through the pages of an old school journal and rewriting the portions that were misspelled or had backwards letters or were otherwise unintelligible or unacceptable to her in the moment. And this is a moment as a parent where you're just thinking, what do I do? God, give me the words. I've got nothing. And I got down on my knee and I hugged her. And the words that came out were, no, no, sweet girl. That's what the rest of the pages are for. And the same is true for you and for me. We, we don't undo what's been done, right? They're fumbling moments of growth or mistakes we've learned from or significant uh, elements of, of, of remorse, things we surely would like to have done differently. Many in this room, you have, have experienced deep, profound, unspeakable trauma, and we would never in a million years put that in the category of something that God willed to happen. 
And yet, nonetheless, these things do happen as a matter of living in the chaos of a fallen world. But whatever the case, these episodes are a part of who we are, where we are, who we are becoming, and we are not who we are, where we are, who we are becoming without them. And so God orchestrates it for the good, not just for our own, but in order to preserve a great number of people, a numerous people, as he is doing today, to cascade outward in blessing and in healing. And so Joseph was uniquely situated to lead all of the known world and navigate this great famine, but also to reunite his fractured family and to be a part of guiding them into the next chapter in their their story. They, They were resettled from a seat of power in Canaan, now brought as essentially strangers into a foreign land. And where does the story go from here? Into Egypt. The story continues into Exodus, this story of continued trial, but ultimately even greater rescue. It doesn't change what happened. It does indeed change the meaning, the significance of what happened throughout Joseph's life. And how appropriate it is that we find ourselves now as a family and as a body of Christ, right on the cusp of once again this journey of Lent that guides us each year in this calendar toward Easter, this time once again in the deserts, a time of trial as we head toward the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb in this story of great rescue, no greater rescue. And so there's no better time to consider the healing work that God has invited you into, repenting the harms we've caused and forgiving the harms caused us so that all of us can move forward and embrace even more fully the path that God is calling us into, right? Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org. 